Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Cobden Centre Radio. My name is Brian Micklethwaite. This is the first of my 2011 interviews, and today I'm talking with Sam Bowman. Now, Sam Bowman is the research manager at the Adam Smith Institute. I'm not quite sure what that means, Sam, but it says here, this is the blurb from the ASI website, uh, responsible for the blog and for overseeing the Adam Smith Institute's briefing papers, think pieces and reports. And then it goes on to say you've also appeared in lots of media outlets. You've got a bachelor's degree in history and economics from University College Cork, and you've recently completed a master's degree in history at the School of Oriental and African Studies, where you wrote your thesis on social engineering in post-colonial Africa. Sounds, right. in sounds yeah. interesting. I hope we'll talk briefly about that. And then, finally, in this, it says, he is influenced by the Austrian School of Economics and has an academic interest in the history of the state. On that Austrian School of Economics thing, lots of people talk about being influenced by Austrian ideas, but I can personally vouch for, for your expertise in this area because I attended most of the study sessions you organized last year on behalf of the Cobden Center, I think, although I think maybe they're not going to be Cobden Center, they're just going to be the Mises Circle or something in the future, is that right? Uh, yeah, they were um, organized by the Cobden, I organized them kind of under the auspices of the Cobden Center. Last. Well, they were excellent and last year we did Man, Economy and State and uh, I certainly wouldn't have got to grips with that book in the way that I did if it hadn't been for your um, assistance and expertise. So I'm not just talking to a randomly selected think tanker here. You really are interested in Austrian economics, but could, could I start by clarifying what exactly is meant by research manager? I mean, was that an accurate description of what you do at the ASI? Uh, yeah, it is, actually. Um, everybody kind of starts off at the ASI as a manager of whatever their thing is, and then after they've been there a certain number of years, they are promoted to something else, and then eventually it's ex-director or something like that. It always... Um, but you, you have a grand title to keep your morale. Exa exactly. But yeah. I, I can't um, help thinking you do quite a lot of work as well. I mean, I've read... I looked through all your blog postings for the year so far, and we're only, what, less than two months into 2011, and already you've done 20 blog postings or so. Hmm. Okay, some of them are little, just little references to other things, but a lot of them are really quite substantial pieces of, of thinking. And you're by no means the most prolific of the, hmm, of the right. bloggers on that blog, are you? Yeah. And, and is it your job to kind of... Yeah, uh, I have to make sure that we have interesting things on the blog. Uh, sometimes I edit uh, things, you know, to make sure they're the right length, that, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. We never have any problems with <laughs> ideological... <laughs> um, but really, I mean, what I'm there to do is to make sure there's something to read every day and there's something interesting, and um, that it, it doesn't really get stuck on the same subject, which can happen if you uh, have a blog. You end up really just writing about the same thing over and over again, especially if you have a group blog, because everybody wants to get their opinion on whatever the news story of the day is. And uh, sometimes it's interesting to see a, different, a few different points, but if everybody has the same view on something, who cares beyond reading one post? So, you know, words, a busy person. That's the, that's the first point I wanted to make, of a generally free market persuasion, and in particular, interested in Austrian economics. Now, let me take you right back to the beginning of your life. What sort of life did you start with? Irish? Yes, I'm Irish. Um, uh, Irish mother, English father, um, so I've always had a bit of a kind of a connection to, to the UK, um, to England. Yeah, I, I um, studied economics, well, never, not in school. I, I didn't like it at school, so I, I dropped it. So I kind of taught myself. Where was this? This is um, in Cork, which mm. is uh, the second city of Ireland. Um, it's kind of the southern, mm. the s southern city. 
and I always kind of loved arguing, especially with my parents, and um, kind of about and politics and philosophy and stuff like that. And um, my uh, dad used to be a lecturer in philosophy, uh, so he was probably what made me interested. He was always quite conservative in the kind of Burkean tradition, which I kind of later uh, came to think was, or have come to think is quite interesting from an Austrian perspective. But yeah, that, that kind of, I became interested in um, that thing when I, liberty basically, when mm. I was um, a teenager. And University of Cork, I mean, sort of the local college? Yeah, yeah. In Ireland, most people go to the local university. It's not like the UK where there's a massive exodus um, around um, the, the, the country. And when I was there, I did economics um, and history. I uh, didn't really like the economics course, and that's kind of what made me a firm Austrian. What was it you didn't like about the economics? Um, I thought that the, the... I can remember, actually, the moment that I kind of basically just stood up and just thought, good God, you know, this is just so ridiculous, was balance of trade, um, where really, um, I, I'd always been quite interested in Hayek and kind of, to a lesser extent, Mises, but I did balance of trade, and it, it was such an absurd kind of idea, this sort of notion that there were people who were losing out on some sort of international trade, even though the micro, at the micro level of economics, no economist would say that there was any kind of trade that takes place at a loss. Uh, you know, every trade is a, both, both parties benefit, but Balance of trade basically was fixed on this idea that there is some sort of huge loss that when you buy a, a car or a TV or something like that from abroad, the country loses out because it's losing all this money. And that to me seemed really um, illogical and inconsistent with the kind of micro foundations. And, and, and I kind of talked to my lecturers about it and they really weren't that up to snuff on it. They, they kind of just said, look, just go with what, what's in the book. You know, we'll teach you later on. You know, we'll, we'll, and it's the way that economics is taught. They do mm. in second year, uh, they do a kind of a Keynesian um, framework and then later on they more or less tell you that everything you learned there was wrong or, you know, don't just ignore it really. But um, You were impatient. You wanted to know now yeah, what, I, what it, the truth of it was. It infuriated me. It really, really... Um, so I... Through a few different things, uh, I found a, a Russ Roberts Econ Talk podcast uh, where he talked about balance of trade with Donald Boudreau, who's a, an economist at George Mason University, and that made me think that even though I don't think Russ Roberts calls himself an Austrian economist, I thought, mm, these guys, you know, I think I was onto something when I was reading Hayek. On roughly uh, the right track. Yeah. This brings up a very important point, which is that Unlike me, when I was your age, there was no internet for yeah. me, but for you there was, and it sounds like it made a huge difference. Huge, yeah, huge. Um, because it, it turned me from being a kind of a Friedman-style classical liberal into an Austrian libertarian, an Austrian person who really, really sees, or, or at least is interested in seeing, what it is that is kind of behind the economy and how it is that people interact with each other and how that becomes an economy. Because... I didn't think that macroeconomics did that, really. The, the Keynesian macroeconomic and neoclassical macro, macroeconomic models that were taught in class were too... Um, too macro. Too I mean, macro. they're just yeah. piling up numbers. They yeah, exactly. Yes. They aggregated things too yes. much. And it turned out, really, that um, as, I, as I kind of went through the course and I hated that year, um, I, I really... It was the worst... Academically, it was the worst year of my life because it was just so relentless and you just have to learn basically I mean as if I had to learn the catechism or something like that you know I grew up in Catholic Ireland luckily it wasn't that Catholic I didn't have to learn the catechism but if I it was kind of like an economic catechism uh, you know a sort of a, a list of things that I just have to learn by rote and these are the truths and this is how uh, you know ISLM curves although actually there's probably some truth to them work and that kind of drove me in the Austrian direction and the Austrian suspicion of elegant models and the Austrian suspicion of 
over stylized graphs and aggregation really, really appealed to me. So then you started reading the great works. Yeah, um, I, as I say, I'd always been interested in Hayek, uh, but from a kind of a road to certain type of Hayek, which is obviously quite appealing to a lot of different kind of liberals and conservative types. Then I started reading Mises, and actually what, what mainly interested Mises was a, a guy that I, that I had known through a, few, like through a friend who was in Dublin, an economics student there, who I was kind of friendly with on Facebook, and who said, you know, he was also a libertarian, but he was a proper Austrian, and he said, you know, you must read this, so-and-so, and I would kind of chat to him about it, and he was always quite helpful because he uh, kind of didn't really explain anything to me, but he said, you read this, you'll probably find this interesting, and sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't, but it made me appreciate the importance of some, reading something for yourself and grappling with it for yourself, and that, I think has been probably one of the biggest influences. Well, it certainly came across like that in the, in the study groups you held yeah. that I attended, the feeling that you wanted us to really get to grips with it. Now, how did you get in, plugged into the think tank world in Britain? You went to SOAS, yeah. School of or Oriental yeah. and African Studies. Which, which everybody told me was going to be a kind of a left-wing um, bastion, and I thought, ah, it would be fun. And when I went there, I realized it really was, just I couldn't, I couldn't comprehend a place like that before. Uh, but it was very interesting, and it was useful, uh, because I encountered people who spoke and thought in a way that I hadn't encountered before. And um, I think you know, people who thought on a very, very socialist kind of level, thought on a very idealistic level, and a very hostile level to, uh, who were very hostile to any kind of robust challenge to that uh, worldview. And it, it, on a social level, it was great. Uh, academically, it was interesting because I think that they kind of saw me as a sort of red-headed stepchild of the class. Because I, while everybody else was writing papers about, you know, archaeology and Benin, I, I wrote a paper about methodological individualism in African prehistory, and you know. Um, yes. And, you know, it was, it was really brilliant fun, and uh, I don't know if anybody else has ever written a paper on methodological individualism in African prehistory. Well, so. as, as I'm fond of saying in all directions, we need our people everywhere, and I, I actually remember having a conversation with you about this the first time we met, about how useful it is to have people from all sorts of different academic specialities and, yeah. and with different sorts of experiences and different things to talk about. So, so then, so as being in London, yeah. that enabled you to go to, I don't know, ASI events? Yeah, sort of true. It was, it was strange, actually. It was more or less in a pub. Um, I kind of basically just was chatting to um, a, a person who works at the ASI and um, kind of just through chance we kind of knew, I had a mutual friend, really, uh, through this kind of fair trade thing I was uh, doing because I, cause fair trade um, sugar and stuff like that was a big campaign. Uh, so, I'd, so I'd set up a Facebook group, you know, that, you know, boycott fair trade, uh, and I'm, I think that, unfair trade. Yeah, it, exactly, <laughs> it is. Um, and I think that obviously it's a it's a consumer choice. Um, mm. So I, I'm not in favour of banning fair trade, uh, yeah, I but I think that it's probably an unwise consumer choice for the objectives that most of the consumers who buy it think that they're um, satisfying. And so anyway, through a mutual friend, I was introduced to a um, staff member at the ASI, and I did an internship there, and through kind of a, a few things, um, I, I think probably through my work at the Carbon Centre as well, which showed that I had that kind of interest that went beyond... Just turning up and listening exactly, to talks exactly, and things like that. Yeah, I think that probably um, helped me. That pretty much brings us to where you are now. Yeah. Uh, and what, what you are now doing, among various other things, is media performances. I'd like to ask you about those. 
I'm interested in, of course, in the content of the kinds of things you talk about, but I'm also interested in, in what it's like. Do you feel you're stepping into a deeply hostile environment whenever you go anywhere near the BBC with Austrian economics? Or, do, on the other hand, as I suspect may be the case, do you feel a certain grudging respect for the sorts of ideas you put forward? I mean, which is it? I think it's a mixture of the two, depending on what the subject is, depending on how familiar they are with uh, your arguments. So, for, for something which recently we've been speaking about, minimum wage, nobody's new to minimum wage arguments. Yes. Um, so, everybody kind of knows, you've already been pigeonholed, everybody knows what you're going to say. But on more Austrian uh, topics, more conventionally, um, things that you would think of when you think of the Austrian school, particularly banking, but um, other kind of... Uh, things to do with the, the approach to how government should run the economy, the approach to how government should run the money supply, stuff like that. People, I think, are surprised and usually do respect the fact that you are probably... I think, I think the surprise means that they have to be respectful because they're dealing with a completely new creature. They don't... to, to them, it's a... Mm. The, the, they've expected you to come out with one line. Uh, which is probably going to be a kind of a Thatcherite monitor. The, the money, the money thing, I think is fascinating, especially at the moment. We've seen recently uh, in the news has been uh, inflation uh, figures. And every time I've spoken to a journalist who's been looking for a quote about Bank of England should raise rates, stuff like that, I've always kind of given them a lecture on um, that we have no idea. Maybe the Bank of England should be lowering rates. I, I honestly don't know. Which they weren't expecting exactly. to say. They, they were expecting, expecting to say, no, bring, bring rates up or exactly. make it harder. Exactly. To yeah, yeah. Exactly. And make it harder for people who own mortgages yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. So we need to feel the pain yes, and that kind of yes, thing. Yes. And when they, hear, when they are surprised like that, they become much, much more open and much, much more receptive to what you're saying. So I think that's... I think bizarrely for a school that's been around for 150 years, the Austrians right now have the element of surprise. And right now Austrians, in some areas, can make very, very deep inroads intellectually and um, in terms of the, the media as well. Well, it's, it seems to me that the, the big reason for Austrianism being on the march right now is that for the first time ever, the question is precisely a question that Austrians are very well equipped to answer. And it's as if they've been banging away with the answer for the last 50 years or something. Mm. And for the first time, the whole world is asking the question, which is basically what, what the is going on. Yeah. You know, what just happened? Yeah. And we're, I say we, I mean, I'm very much a foot soldier in all this, but we are able to, to answer that question. Yeah, yeah. And, but but I, what I think, though, is that the fact that we are, we are completely new in, in terms of most of these... I mean, the, no BBC journalist, with maybe one exception, um, has heard of the Austrian School of Economics uh, in any kind of real substantial sense. They might think, oh, Hayek, he was an Austrian, that's a you know, liquidationist kind of school, and kind of write it off as that. But when they hear the arguments about what it is, and when they hear the arguments, it's new to them. And so I think that the, the, the mm. kind of combination of those two factors has probably been a great asset and probably will be a great asset to us. It might suggest, though, that if they get familiar with it, they will become more hostile when they get more confident of what's wrong with what you're saying. I mean, there's, it suggests a kind of time limit to what you're describing. Do you think that might happen? Yeah, um, that, that is possible. Uh, I don't know necessarily why um, they would become hostile to us, because what we're saying isn't out of step with there's no reason that, for example, a free banking system should be a right-wing idea. There's really nothing right-wing about that at all, except in the sense that right-wingers want to, you know, to use, I'm not really, I don't really like the term. I think that it's, there, there is no reason for it to be seen as a nasty 
when I say right-wing, I really mean nasty, because yes. Yes. that's how the BBC and that's how most uh, mainstream media outlets view the right, mm. um, is as being nasty people who, ju who just want the world to kind of starve, basically, because without the government, of course, we're all going to starve. But in terms of central, the central bank, it's not really clear. Nobody really knows what to do. Of course, because how could they? I mean, it's, it's like any other business. system. We don't yeah. know how to set the prices. Yeah. But it's something that I think might be, might be an, a door that we can push up. Well, I, one of the things that is very striking about the present kinds of arguments that go on is that it's often a bit of a leap for them intellectually, the opponents of our sort of ideas, to grasp that it is even the, the government that's setting the price. I mean, that it actually is some kind of nationalised industry you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. And, and so many people take it for granted that it's just impossible. It's just capitalism. How could it be, you know, it's yeah. a bank of big fat columns yeah. and Greek temples and things. It's got to be capitalism. What else could it be? That, that's that's it, the assumption. Exactly. I always find it incredible when you see, you know, the, for, sometimes people use the Statue of Liberty as the icon of capitalism. Or, you know, when you, when you want to kind of an approximation, you have a hammer and sickle for communism. Mm. But I always find it incredible when people use the Bank of England as the symbol of capitalism. I mean, it's one of the most statist institutions in the country. Uh, and, and, and it stands for one of the most statist, it's like having the NHS as, the, as a model for capitalism or as a, as a logo for capitalism. Yes. And I think that there's also um, a view of, uh, the, of the free, mar free market movement that w from, from the left that we want the free market to be a kind of a managerial, a way of sort of managing society. And they think that we couldn't possibly be in favor of a free market because of the free element. We just want the market because we think that keeps people in their place and it preserves some sort of order that we won't preserve because we're the right, supposedly, and, you know, we must All be about like the... keeping people's spirits exactly. low. Yeah, we must be like the yes. people who sat on the right of the French Assembly. Mm. Um, you know, Nasty. Exactly. And um, so when you give them this argument that really you should have a kind of a chaotic market system if, if for money, then I think that that surprises a lot of people. Mm. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you, you have um, a lot of, I think a lot of people, when you explain it to them, and when you, when you say it to them, are willing to listen. So, we'll, we'll see whether... We'll, see whether well, I, I can imagine that, that somebody like you, with a sort of engaging, breezy personality, would come over very well. Do they ask you about Ireland? I'm guessing they do. Yeah, mostly I've um, been speaking about Ireland in the media during the kind of Irish bailout. This was last November, I think it was, um, that Ireland applied for a bailout from the European Union and the IMF. And that was partially to bail out the Irish banks, which or had lent out huge bonds to uh, British banks and French banks and German banks. You know, the, the whole kind of European banking system was tied up in these banks. So it was a, an attempt, in my mind, to kind of bail out the European banking system. And I think that it was probably interesting for people to hear in the UK an Irish accent, uh, an Irish voice, say, who, who spoke in a kind of a, in a, in a British context, who, who wasn't saying, I'm, a, I'm speaking for Ireland, I'm speaking for the people of Ireland, which I wasn't, and I, and I, and I can't. Um, I don't think anybody can speak for the people of anywhere, but I think it was probably interesting for people who, who clearly I had no kind of agenda um, in terms of oppressing the Irish people or the Irish economy, so it was probably quite interesting to people to hear that, that kind of mm. free market uh, argument from that, that position. I managed to be on kind of Sky and BBC News and quite a few things. I was lucky and... You've um, been on Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera, yeah. uh, which I'm very proud of actually. What did they ask you? What did they ask you? Um, they asked me 
really what everybody asks they just you know why should why shouldn't um we give this money to the irish banks you know yeah. why shouldn't we lend this money i said well you know it's not good for britain it's a huge risk obviously to kind of put that kind of money in but i mean really it's not good for ireland to bail out banks as we've seen it already in the you know 2008 bailing out banks just means that next round they're going to be it's going to be even worse you know that kind of moral hazard introduced is introduced to the system and you think it's going to happen in Ireland? What's going to happen in Britain when the, when the British banks uh, go go down again and it's bigger? And Al Jazeera wanted to wanted to know what everybody else wanted to know, and uh, I'm very happy to have gone on Al Jazeera. It's yeah, quite I, controversial. Um, I, you know, well done. I think some, it's a good thing to do. <coughs> yes. Some people think that they that you shouldn't go on news outlets that are kind of maybe kind of controversial. Although I think Al Jazeera actually kind of redeemed themselves in the last few weeks in the Arab uh, crisis, but I think that. The, the free market message is still seldom heard. A, a genuine free market message is still seldom heard. Usually it's a Conservative Party uh, spokesman, spokesman who is... Well, just a small suggestion of an idea in a circumstance where you're not expecting it. Your mind can be set racing in a completely different direction. So I'm, I think, personally, that, that getting a word in edgeways in these circumstances is almost the most valuable thing you can do. Yeah, I Certainly agree. worth doing. I agree, yeah. Um, what, how do you think the future, first of all, personally, for you, what, what do you see your future? What, what's the next step, do you think, for you? Um, I have no idea. I think that I, I would probably like to work where I'm working for a while. I don't see myself being in a think tank when I'm in my 40s or 50s. Mm. I think uh, eventually I'd like to go back into academia and... Um, Will you pick up the threads of the, of the African stuff? I, don't, I think I probably think? won't, um, yes. because even though I think I wrote interesting stuff, um, but it was the reception was mixed. Sometimes I think the quality was quite consistent, but I think the uh, it, the kind of academic establishment is sometimes a little hostile to uh, a, a, when you're when, and, and maybe I was a bit arrogant in being basically this is my methodology and this is the way I want to do it and. You know, I don't really care about X, Y, or Z or the way it's been, you know, done done like that. I want to do it. Well, in a, in a sense, in order to hold your own in those sort of circumstances, you have to have a bit of. Yeah, I'm waving my fist. You I understand? Thought, yeah, I thought. I mean, in the master's degree, I thought I don't really have that much to lose. You know? So, what will you do? Do you think? I think that within the next 20 years, I'd like to do a PhD in economics or uh, political economy, something something mm. like that, and because um, I think that the Austrians. And I would do it in, a, in an Austrian uh, field or with an Austrian supervisor, or at least an Austrian sympathetic supervisor. If, uh, if, and it's, supervisor it's academia that you're kind of pointing at. Yeah, I mean, Hayek wrote um, a, a, an article about 65 years ago called um, The Intellectuals and Socialism. And essentially he argued that the reason socialism had taken hold in the UK, and it's still taken hold, and it still has hold in the UK. I mean, three party leaders are all effectively social democrats or socialists. And if you challenge that in any kind of university, especially in a humanities department, you're shot down almost immediately. So I think that one of the big battles that, even if Austrians do make headway popular in the kind of popular realm in the media, there still remains a huge battle to be fought in academia and um, in getting papers published in respected journals that challenge the establishment, the, uh, economics, the, the economics establishment, and say basically this is the, you know, we've, we've been doing it wrong for a hundred well, years. Well, I tell you what, I did, a, did one of these conversations with Anthony Evans mm -hmm. 
And I pretty much said, are you the only Austrian in British academia? And he pretty much said, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so this will be music to his ears, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I presume you know him well. Yes, I do, yeah. Uh, that, that's good. Um, and what about um, the state of the world and the state of the debate? Are you optimistic about that? or? Mm, no, not really. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm a broad grin on your face, but... Yeah, mm. I'm not. I'm not. I think that it's, it's a long battle, and... I mean, Hence the, the academia, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think that... You see, the George Mason University in America, which is kind of a mecca for Austrians, is flourishing. It's one of the most interesting economics departments in the world, probably, and I think that almost everybody across the spectrum of, you know, methodologies... And they haven't talked about that a lot. Yeah, um, would, would agree that mm. it's interesting and there's very, very, very interesting stuff coming out on a whole range of uh, topics. And the economists there talk about history and you know, social um, kind of traditions, stuff like that, really, really interesting things that have nothing to do with, you know, macro models. The of, money supply. Yeah, yes. of, of two lines crossing each mm. other. And, I mean, you open some economics textbooks, you have 50 graphs, they're all the same, but just the, the things are labeled slightly differently, and they go, oh, that proves X, Y, or Z. But, um, I, I mean, I don't know if I would go to America, because I love England so much, but... I'd love to. I'd love to stay in England and to be a kind of an Austrian professor. Sort of. It's sort of a question of identifying where the front line is and getting there. Not going too far. Not staying behind. Not staying in the safety of the, the home camp. Yeah. Finding the front line. That that seems to be the way you're thinking. Yeah. I mean. It's and and that is where it is in your judgment. Yeah, I think so. Yes. It's incredibly hard. I think that there's a, a big battle as well in kind of politics. And I mean, having a, a, an MP like Steve Baker. Uh, I think is a, a huge asset, and having somebody like that, and hopefully other MPs who can kind of follow suit and see that, because I'm sure there are closet Austrians uh, in, in Parliament, but I don't think you're ever going to win the battle there, because there are 600 people there, and ultimately their job is to, their comparative advantage is in getting elected, and if it's, if it's a difficult, what you have to do is change how you get elected, and change the rules of the game, don't change the players. Uh, this is the Hayek message, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yes. And um, I think the way you change the rules of the game is to look at where do the influential people in society go through, and they all go through university, and they all take their ideas in university, especially people on the left who tend to absorb, um, maybe I'm being a little harsh, but I tend to be slightly less critical of viewpoints that, that they encounter in university. And that, I think, needs to change if there's, if there's going to be a long-term um, success of Austrianism. Well, that's a very good note on which to end. Sam Bowman, thank you very, very much. I learned quite a bit about what, especially what you hope to do in the future. I already knew quite a bit about what you've done in the past. It's been very interesting talking with you, and thank you very much indeed. Thank you.